Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The Peter Schiff Show. So far, we only have two trading days in the 2020s, and we're already off to a pretty volatile start. I mean, first of all, Monday, we had an explosive rally, really no news, but the Dow was up better than 300 points. Uh, you had a 100, what, 30, 40 point rise in the NASDAQ. I think it was about a 1.4% gain. So a very strong day across the board, with the exception of the Russell 2000, which was actually down pretty substantially for most of the trading section. Uh, and then towards the end, maybe in the last hour, when we had another rally to new highs uh, for the market we saw a move up in the Russell 2000, but the Russell 2000 couldn't quite make it into positive territory. So it was the only index that closed the day in the red. And remember, I've been talking about that on this podcast. The Russell 2000 is the only index that did not make a new record high. The high for the Russell 2000 is still in uh, the fall of 2018. And it looks like that that may be the high. We may not take out that high at all. Now, another interesting thing about the divergence that we saw between uh, the overall market, particularly the tech stocks and the broader, uh, smaller U.S. Uh, companies, was that we had a spike, uh, a rally rather, in, in interest in bond market, a rally in the bond market. So interest rates went down as this was happening. And we had a rise in the dollar, 
right? The dollar actually went up. But despite the fact that the dollar went up, no real news other than strength in the U.S. stock market, the gold market managed to add on another $10 in yesterday's trading. But despite that $10 rise, gold stocks were very subdued. They were really flat on the day. So while stock market investors threw caution to the wind and just were buying uh, indiscriminately, with the exception of you know the small cap stocks, the gold stock investors remained cautious, even though gold was moving up in gold stocks. You know, by the way, gold stocks beat the S&P 500 in 2019. As good a year as the S&P had, up almost 30%, Gold stocks are up about 40%. But it's not just 2019 where the gold stocks have beat. If you go back over the entire last two years, if you include 2018 and 2019, gold stocks outperformed the S&P 500. Now, if you go back three full years, right, for the beginning of 2017, then the S&P has outperformed gold stocks, but not by that much. I mean, you wouldn't realize... Uh, but there's not that big a gap between the S&P and gold stocks. In fact, I think by the end of this year, this calendar year, I think gold stocks will have outperformed the S&P for the six years prior, going back from the beginning of 2015 through the end of 2020. I think you would have seen gold stocks beating the S&P 500, which also means they would have beat the S&P 500 for the entirety of the Trump presidency, right? The first term of Donald Trump, which may in fact end up being the only term we'll see. But very few people, probably other than me, thought that the best performing sector of the market under Donald Trump would end up being the gold stocks. But I think that's the way it is going to shake out. Yet despite the fact that we've had two very good years uh, for gold stocks, gold investors were cautious yesterday unlike uh, stock investors. But again, it's also interesting to continue to point out the fact that it is the Russell 2000 that is the weak spot shows that the real concern is with the domestic economy, right? Despite the fact that we get all this rosy talk about how great the economy is, how it's the best economy ever, the stocks that are the most sensitive to that great economy, right, the domestic stocks, those are the ones that are doing the worst. It's the stocks that have more exposure to the global economy, which is the one that's supposedly in trouble, right? All the time when you hear uh, people talking, particularly some of the Fed guys that spoke, and I'll get into that later in the podcast, but their main concern seems to be weakness in the overseas economy, you know, somehow spilling over onto our shores. Well, if that is the case, if the weakness is outside the United States, why are the stocks that have more exposure to those supposedly weaker economies, why are those the ones that are doing better? And why are the stocks that are domestically focused the ones that are lagging and not making a new high? In fact, today we got a couple of economic reports, but the most significant was the ISM number that came out for December. And, you know, we had been down four months in a row uh, before uh, or four months in a row of contraction. And the estimate was for another contraction, and that's anything below 50. But the consensus was for an improvement because in November, the index was 48.1. 
And so the consensus was an improvement to 49.1. So still contracting, but not as much. Instead, we went the other direction. We ended up at 47.2. That is a very, very weak number uh, for ISM manufacturing. In order to get a number that weak, you have to go back to June of 2009. Now, that was the tail end of the Great Recession. In fact, the production component of that number was the lowest since April of 2009, also within uh, the Great Recession. And, you know, it's kind of funny because supposedly, right, this is the greatest economy ever. I mean, even I was reading this tweet from Larry Elder, who is a good guy, the sage of South Central. Uh, You know, he's uh, hosted, he hosted the Peter Schiff show for me. Uh, a few times when I was doing the radio show. He's a great guy. I used to listen to his radio show uh, when I was younger in in L.A. Uh, But even he is, you know, jumping on the Trump train because his tweet referenced the U.S. economy, the current U.S. economy, as the greatest economy in American history when we are not even close. But the, the, the irony of it is, or the funny part, is that the greatest economy in history and the worst economy, at least the worst economy since the Great Depression, right, the Great Recession, that these two economies have so much in common, including uh, how weak the ISM manufacturing numbers are. Of course, they have a lot of other things uh, that they have in common, too. There's very little difference uh, between the Obama economy and the Trump economy. In fact, the Trump economy is merely a trumped-up version of the Obama economy because we have more fiscal and monetary stimulus now than we had then. We have bigger uh, budget deficits now, and we have a more aggressive Fed. The monetary policy is easier. The Fed is printing money faster now. The balance sheet is growing faster than it was when Obama was president. So you have this massive fiscal stimulus that is blowing additional air into that big, fat, ugly bubble that Trump inherited from Obama, yet all the Republicans want to pretend that the economy was a complete disaster when Obama was president, and it's fantastic now. Although I think one of the reasons that they feel so compelled to accept that false narrative is because they're afraid of what happens if they don't. Because the only thing standing between America and socialism is the belief that we have a great economy under Trump. Because otherwise, why not vote for Bernie Sanders? Well, because we have this great economy, right? Because Trump made America great again, uh, with you know his policies, and we don't want to risk that right by going to something like socialism. But if you admit that Trump hasn't improved the economy, that all we've done is taken on even more debt to blow up a bigger bubble, well, then you leave that window open for the socialists to say, hey, let's give this a try, even though there's no point in trying something that's never succeeded once in all of history that has failed every time it's been tried. You know, but tried telling that to Americans who believe in this nonsense. But the only thing that the conservatives had or the Republicans have now is to is to hold on to this this false narrative of how great the economy is. So everybody is getting on board and repeating how great the economy is, hoping that the voters will buy it and that they'll elect Trump so as not to you know upset this apple cart. But in any event, all of the uh, optimism that we had in the stock markets on Monday was kind of thrown for a loop overnight. Uh, we got the news later last night that the United States had killed a top uh, general in Iran in a drone attack. Basically, 
the guy was coming out of a plane at the airport and we had a drone that came in and just blew up the car that he and his entourage were traveling. It might have been a couple of cars. And so we killed everybody in the car, including uh, this top general. And as soon as the news came out, we started to see a reaction in the markets. We saw, you know, the safe haven assets went up, gold went up. Uh, the Swiss franc, the Japanese yen initially went up a bit. You saw a move up in the treasury market. You even saw a move up in Bitcoin. You know, And Bitcoin had really been off to a weak start. I was joking with some of these Bitcoin guys on Twitter that after the first trading day, you know, Bitcoin was like the only thing that went down. Uh, it was down a couple of percent, maybe two or three percent on the first two trading days of the year. Although, because Bitcoin was trading on January 1st, unlike all the other assets that were closed, Bitcoin was still trading and it went down and it went down some more on January 2nd. So I was joking that it was the worst performing uh, asset of the decade, of the new decade. Because, you know, all I read uh, over the weekend or over the holiday, there was all these articles about how Bitcoin was the best performing asset of the last decade which of course it was, right? But that doesn't do any good for the people who are buying it now. I mean, you don't want to buy an asset after it's the best performing. You want to buy it before, right? But the idea is that, hey, Bitcoin did so great in the last decade, it's going to you know, have a repeat performance, right? You should buy it now because it was the best performing asset of the last decade. If anything, that's a reason to sell it. And some of the smarter money obviously was selling it. And that's why it got off to such a weak start. And you know, all these Bitcoin guys, they're going to constantly be looking in the rearview mirror, right? It's all about past performance. That's why how you tout, right, the success of Bitcoin. You can always point out how well it's done in the past, regardless of how horrible it does in the future, right? It doesn't matter. Bitcoin can go to a thousand and you can still go back and say, yeah, but if you had bought it in 2009, look how much money you would have made. It's the best performing asset since 2009. Yeah, even if Bitcoin goes down to a hundred, you can still make that claim because it started at like a penny. So from a penny to $100 is a phenomenal return. Nothing's going to beat that. But you think anyone's going to care if they're still holding on to Bitcoin when it's down at 100, that it's the top performing investment if you had bought it at a penny? How much money went into it when it was a penny, right? So these are the nonsense arguments. But Bitcoin even caught a bid uh, from this, uh, you know, this, this uh, killing and the political, the geopolitical risks and uncertainty that are now elevated as a result of this action. I mean, clearly what we did heightens the risk in the Middle East and in particular with Iran. Now, you know, was it a mistake? I mean, was Trump wrong uh, to kill Soleimani uh, or whoever, whoever you pronounce the guy's name? I think I pronounced it right. Uh, but was it a mistake? I mean, I don't know. Probably. It probably was because most of the stuff that the government does is a mistake. Now, does that mean that the guy didn't deserve to die? I mean, he probably did. He's a, From what I know about him, he's a pretty bad guy. He's killed a lot of people, including a lot of Americans. I mean, so he did deserve to die. I'm not upset that the guy is dead. He probably deserved uh, to die. Probably, it, it, you know, it, it, a worse way than he did. He probably had no idea, right? It was a very swift death. Uh Probably some of the people that were killed because of him didn't have the benefit of, uh, of a quick death. But uh, it's not about whether or not he deserved to die or whether or not the world is a better place now that he's gone, because it probably is, right? But the question is, is the world a safer place? Is America in particular safer now that we took this guy out? 
And nobody knows the answer to that for sure, but the odds are probably not, right? Because first of all, all right, we kill one general. It's not like they don't have another general that's going to take his place, right? I mean, it's not like, okay, you know, they're not going to have any military anymore because we killed this guy. There's always another guy. Now, people are saying, yeah, but he's not going to be as bad as this guy. This guy was the worst, right? Well, I mean, look, there's an expression, the devil you know. I mean, sometimes the devil you don't know is even worse. Maybe there's a guy that's worse than Soleimani, and maybe that's where he's coming. I don't know. But let's even assume that Soleimani is the absolute worst, right? You can't get any worse than him. So whoever they pick to replace him isn't quite as bad, right? He's still probably going to be bad, but maybe on a scale of badness, maybe a Soleimani is like a 10. Okay, so the guy that replaces him is a 9. See, the problem is the way the Iranians will be able to use this assassination, right? Because first of all, you turn Soleimani into a martyr, right? All of a sudden, now, oh my God, right? He's this martyr, and there's a lot of sympathy for him in Iran, a lot of outrage turned at America, and now the Iranians could use that, right, to vilify America. It's a great recruitment tool to get more soldiers or more terrorists. Look at the big, bad, evil America, right? We just blew this guy up in the middle of the night. We're a bunch of cowards. We didn't, you know, fight him hand to hand. We just, a big bomb comes out of the sky and blows him up, right? So, it, you know, it's easy then for the Iranians to drum up all that anger uh, at America to further justify uh, whatever they're going to do. A lot of times these things have a tendency uh, to blow back at you with unintended consequences, just like everything the government does. So my initial feeling is because we took out this guy, the world is a little bit less safe than it was the other day. And the risk premiums have to go up because the the um, odds of some type of hot war actually breaking out. Remember, you know, we've got these sanctions against Iran. So we're kind of having a war without, you know, it's not really a fighting war. It's an economic war that we're waging against Iran. But the odds that this escalates into something more, because obviously we just took out a general. I mean, that that is an act of war, right? I mean, what we did to Iran is an act of war, right? I mean, if a country blew up one of our generals, right? If we had a top general, right, that just got out of a plane at an American Air Force base and some country's military, right, just assassinated him, just blew him up, you, you don't think we'd go to war against that country? Of course we would, right? So this is an act of war, right? It's like the Japanese, you know, they came and they bombed Pearl Harbor. So we had to declare war on Japan because they attacked us. We attacked Iran, right? Now, I'm not saying we're in the wrong and I'm not taking Iran's side. I'm just pointing out a fact, right? So what we did, an act of war, escalates the probability that some type of hot war is going to break out in the Middle East. And obviously, if that's going to happen, that's going to disrupt oil in the Middle East. That's why oil prices were up a couple of dollars, right? Two dollars, two and a half dollars. Now, oil prices weren't up $10 or $20. I mean, like, I remember when we had uh, the Desert Storm or before we'd had Desert Storm, when this is when Bush was president, the, the older Bush, when um, Saddam Hussein went into Kuwait, I think oil prices were up $10 a barrel when they started at 20 or 30, something like that. I mean, so huge move percentage-wise way back then. So what's happening now 
a couple of dollar move on crude. I mean, now we're about $62 and change. I mean, that's not that big a move because right now, nobody really believes that the oil supply is going to be disrupted. But the probability that that might happen has been elevated. And so there is now, deservingly so, a higher risk premium being priced into a barrel of oil. And I think that is justified. In fact, I think the risk premium is going to get a little higher. And I've been talking about it on this podcast about the fact that I think we are in a bullish formation on oil prices and that I think oil prices are headed higher. In fact, I think we have a nice shot of getting up to $70 a barrel here over the next few months and you know, much higher maybe by the end of the year. But this is not good news for the economy. Sure, the U.S. economy isn't as vulnerable as it once was because we're not importing as much as we used to, but consumers still have to buy oil. They still have to pay for things. Prices are already going up, and this is going to add upward pressure on already increasing prices, which is going to be a negative uh, for people who have to buy you know, energy or buy things that are transported using energy or things that are manufactured with energy. I mean, costs are going to be going up, and this is a negative. It's also going to be a negative for the bond market, right? a negative which the Federal Reserve will likely try to offset uh, by continuing quantitative easing to keep that inflation premium from you know pushing up long-term interest rates, which would be a bigger burden for the economy. But there's also now, I think, a bigger safe haven risk premium on the price of gold, right? I mean, gold isn't just an inflation hedge. It is predominantly that. You know, the main reason that gold is going up is because of the Fed. But obviously, in a world where you have heightened geopolitical risk, which could adversely affect bond markets and stock markets, you would expect to see greater demand for gold as a hedge in your portfolio. And that's why the price of gold was up better than $20 an ounce today. In fact, gold went up steadily early on. As soon as the news came out, gold went up a couple of bucks. And then it took an hour or two for it to rally up to about $10. But then it really started to increase uh, earlier in the morning. And, you know, by the time it opened in the U.S., we were up about 20 bucks, and that's about where we stood. I mean, maybe the lowest I saw was up 15 or 16. And in fact, we went out right on the high of the day, up around 2160 uh, is where it is now. And as I'm, I'm recording this, we're actually up $23 now. We've traded up a little bit. We're trading at uh, $1,551.70, up $23 on the day. But interestingly enough, despite this $20 rise in the price of gold today, gold stocks were down. The GDX, the GDXJ, uh, the XAU, all three of those indexes finishing down near the lows of the day. I mean, they didn't get killed, but they were down. And in fact, the gold stocks are down on the year. They were down yesterday, but and they're down again today. So they're down overall. The first two trading days of 2020 for gold stocks are down, despite the fact that gold has risen by better than $30 an ounce during those first two days. And in fact, gold is up more percentage-wise than the S&P or the Dow. 
The Dow is up maybe about 1%, right? It had an up day yesterday, lost about two-thirds of those gains today. So it's up on the year, but it's not up as much as gold. Gold is the number one performing asset so far. Again, it's only two days in, but it's number one. Gold is beating even the NASDAQ, right? But gold stocks are down. And again, you know, there's no real fundamental news that is bullish for U.S. stocks that has come out in the last couple of days. In fact, on balance, the news has been negative, yet the U.S. stock market has gone up. That's the opposite of what's happened with gold. We've had nothing but bullish news for gold stocks, right? We have a $30 move up in the price of gold. We have heightened geopolitical risk associated with gold, yet the gold stocks have gone down. Why is that? Again, I think you've got a lot of fearful traders, right? There's a wall of worry in this bull market. There's a lot of skepticism in the gold rally, which I regard as being healthy, right? That you don't have uh, a devil may care, you know, throw caution to the wind type of attitude the way you have it in the S&P 500, right? People are nervous in the gold stock market, despite the fact that we've had two very good years in gold stocks. Uh, investors are still kind of gun shy. They're worried about a correction. Remember, the last time gold got up to 1550, we had a pretty deep correction. I forget where the bottom was, maybe 1470, 1460. But, you know, we had like a, almost a hundred dollar drop off of 1550. And now here we are knocking on that 1550 door again. And it doesn't think or doesn't look like the gold investors think we're going to go through the door. We're going to be turned away and that we're going to pull back. And since stocks are a discounting mechanism, what the gold stocks are doing is they are discounting the next gold pullback. They're assuming that the price of gold is going to sell off. And so they are selling their gold stocks now in advance of that sell-off. Probably what the intention of traders is, is after we get a sell-off in gold, after we get a nice correction, maybe down to around 1500 right? Maybe a little bit lower. Well, they'll come in and buy them back. And that may happen. I mean, it is certainly possible that the market is correct and that we're going to have a pullback from 1550. After all, that is the resistance. So you might think that that's the smart bet that the resistance is going to hold and we're going to have a pullback. And we might. But even if we do, I don't think that it's going to be that drastic. I mean, I don't think we're going to go much below 1500 if we even get down to 1500. Maybe we'll only pull back to 1510, 1520, which is not that far down. I mean, that's back to where we ended last year, a couple of days ago. How much risk is there in the gold stocks if that happens? Not much. I mean, I think we will go down a little bit more, but I don't think we'll go down much more because I think most of that small correction has already been priced into the gold stocks during the past couple of days. But this is something that you really need to think about. What if the gold speculators are wrong? What if we go through 1550? What if there isn't a pullback? What if the next pullback is from 1600 or 1650 back down to 1550 or 1575, right? What if there is more to this rally than the gold traders believe? Well, if that is the case, if we end up with an up move in gold next week, then we have a huge move for the gold stocks, right? Because the gold stocks have to catch up. They have to catch up to the fact that they totally dismissed this last $30 rally because they figured that gold was going to sell off. But if instead gold breaks through resistance and keeps on rising, well, they have to rush to buy back the gold stocks they sell. And I think we could see an explosive move up 
in the price of gold stocks. Now, I think the opposite is actually going to happen when it comes to Bitcoin, because, you know, you're going to see a lot of articles or read a lot of articles over the weekend about how, you know, Bitcoin further is proving that it's digital gold, right? That it was up today, just like gold. And you'll read these articles that, oh, Bitcoin was up 5% today. And I think at its high point, it probably was, but that's because it started, uh, you know, below 7,000. In fact, if you go back and look at where Bitcoin was trading last night, right, before we got the news of uh, the killing in Iran, Bitcoin was below 6,900. I mean, it was really getting ready to tank. The only thing that saved it was this, was this, uh, was this killing and the rally in gold. And I think what happened is, while you actually had real safe haven buying in gold, you had speculative buying in Bitcoin, right? All these articles are going to focus on, oh, there's some safe haven buying. Nobody is buying Bitcoin as a safe haven. A lot of investors are legitimately buying gold as a safe haven. Bitcoin is a highly risky asset. There's no way that you could regard it as a safe haven, right? Bitcoin is still about 50% below its high from last year, right? That is not a safe asset that has that type of price volatility. So why then are people buying Bitcoin, right? Because people started to buy Bitcoin about the same time they started to buy gold, right? In reaction to this geopolitical risk, right? Isn't that make it a safe haven? No. What happens is speculators buy Bitcoin because they know all this talk about Bitcoin being a safe haven may attract other speculators into the market. And maybe even the idea is that eventually legitimate investors will actually buy Bitcoin as a safe haven, even though none of them are actually doing that. But speculators will come in and they will buy Bitcoin, making a bet that some other conservative investor will actually buy it as a safe haven, even though they're buying it as a speculation. The speculation is that somebody else will buy it as a safe haven. But the problem is nobody is currently buying it as a safe haven and nobody ever will buy it as a safe haven, which means this rally is in danger of collapsing because how long can they keep this hype going, right? Either the situation uh, in the Middle East is going to calm down. There's not going to be an immediate retaliation uh, for our actions from Iran. And Bitcoin is just going to resume its bear market. And by the way, it's barely up. I mean, Bitcoin now on the year is maybe up about 2%, something like that, right? Which is the same percentage that gold is up, right? Back in the day when we still had a bull market a few years ago, when you had some type of event like this that would happen, Bitcoin might move up 10%, 20%. Remember those days, right? If all you're doing with Bitcoin is getting the same type of move that you get with gold, if Bitcoin can't even outperform gold on the up days, then what's the point of having it? Because you know it's gonna go down a lot more than gold on the down days. So if you can't get more bang for your buck on the up days, then why take all the risk with your buck in the first place? The fact that this is all that Bitcoin can muster I'm recording this thing and we're 7,300. That's where Bitcoin is. 
you know, with a $30 rally in gold in two days, and that's all you're getting out of Bitcoin is 7300 when it ended up last year around 7200 or 7150 I forget exactly, you know, where it was, uh, you know, because it doesn't actually stop trading, right? It's a 24-hour, seven-day market, but it's barely up. You would expect, and I'm sure all the Bitcoin bugs do expect a much bigger move. Well, we didn't get it. Right. But also, I think one of the other reasons that some of the whales might have been compelled to try to manipulate the market, because first of all, Bitcoin was on the lows. Right. It was going down, I think, to make new lows. I think we're going to challenge that 6400 low that we had earlier in December last year. But I think once gold really started to move, I think some of the whales really were compelled to step up to the plate and take one for the team and start buying some Bitcoin to manipulate that price higher because they have to maintain that false narrative that Bitcoin is digital gold. And so if gold had this big $20 rally and Bitcoin didn't go up, if Bitcoin went down, that would shatter that illusion, right? So to keep that illusion going, right, to keep the market so they can keep dumping uh, their Bitcoin, they had to pump it up. I mean, their backs were to the wall. Hey, we, we better bet get Bitcoin to go up here because otherwise, hey, the whole digital gold narrative that we've worked so hard to perpetuate, that whole thing is going to go up in smoke if we can't get Bitcoin to go up. And so they were able to get it to go up. The amazing thing is how little it went up, how small the rally actually was. And that tells you how much underlying weakness really exists in the Bitcoin market. Well, I want to move away from talking about the markets and talk about the Fed, which, of course, is the driving force behind the markets. In fact, you can't even understand the markets unless you understand the Fed. And very few people seem to understand the Fed, including a lot of the people who are supposedly the experts. You know, I was watching a discussion on CNBC this morning about the Fed, and they were probably discussing the Fed because there were a lot of Fed guys that came out and, 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 and gave talks today or gave interviews. And we also got the release of the FOMC minutes that came out uh, this afternoon at two o'clock. So, you know, the people were talking about the Fed. And uh, there was a discussion, and pretty much everybody that was in this discussion, and I forget who they were, right? Some big names in the financial, you know, field and the regular, you know, CNBC, uh, you know, personalities, you know, the, the hosts. But they all seem to agree that the toughest problem that a central banker can face, right, is the inability to create inflation, which, you know, I almost fall off my chair laughing when I hear these morons talking about how, you know, the Fed wants to create inflation, but it just can't do it. Like it's having such a hard time getting to 2% inflation. And this is such a difficult problem that the Fed has. You know, they're scratching their heads and they're, they're trying to figure out why we can't get 2% inflation. And so this is really a big problem, supposedly, that these bankers face, which is laughable because the easiest thing you can do as a central banker is create inflation. I mean, any, anybody could do that. You just create money. That's what central bankers do. In fact, the only thing they can create is inflation, right? The question is, how does the inflation they create enter the economy and how much damage does it do? And is, it, is the damage, you know, you know, in the future or is it, you know, happen right away, right? There's a lag between the, the inflation they create and uh, all of the pain that ultimately gets felt as a result. But the easiest thing they can do is create inflation. Now, true, yes, they can't micromanage exactly how that inflation works its way through the economy, right? So they can't 
just print more money and automatically get the CPI to go up exactly 2%, right? They can't even do that. But that's not even their goal. They don't even want to do that. I mean, that's how dumb these so-called experts are. They actually believe the Fed. The Fed does not want more inflation, at least inflation as measured by the CPI, right? The Fed wants the inflation rate to stay below 2%. Even though they claim they want otherwise, they don't actually want that. See, what they want is the official measures of inflation to be below 2% so they can justify their monetary policy, which is create more inflation. They want to keep interest rates artificially low. They want to monetize government debts. They want to prevent uh, a crisis. And so the only way to prevent that, or delay it rather, because they're not preventing it, they're just kicking the can down the road and making sure it's worse, right, when we catch up to the can. But in order to do that, they have to keep interest rates low and they have to keep printing money. Well, they can only do that if they can claim that there's not enough inflation. So they want to create inflation, but the last thing they want is the inflation that they create to actually show up in the CPI. Because when that happens, then the game is over. Now, they've already kind of laid the foundation for higher inflation than 2%, right? So they're not even worried now because they've got the markets to accept the fact that it's not 2% that they want. It's symmetrical 2%. So we had less than 2% for a while, so we can have more than 2% for a while. They haven't actually defined how long a while is, so that's kind of gives them some leeway. So yes, the Fed is not going to be as concerned about two and a half, three percent inflation because it's already laid a foundation for accommodating that, right? But to have these guys think that the Fed actually has a problem in creating inflation, look, if it wanted even more inflation, it could get it. It could just print even more money than they're printing now, right? Except it doesn't want to do that, right? It doesn't want to let that cat out of the bag just yet. It needs to hold on to those cards and play them close to, uh, to the vest so you know it doesn't let the markets actually know, uh, you know what, what it's got up its sleeve. But but the idea that, um, that you know, this is some kind of perplexing, difficult problem. How do we get consumer prices to rise even faster? This isn't a problem at all. <laughs> the problem is, how do you stop consumer prices from rising? How do you put the inflation genie at, back in the bottle? That's going to be the problem, right? How do you, you know, rein in inflation once you've let it out of control? Because that's the problem that the Fed is going to have. Because they're creating all this inflation. They're printing all this money. And it's going into the stock market. It's going into the bond market. It's going into the real estate market. It's screwing up the economy. It's leading to all sorts of malinvestments and misallocations of resources and capital. It's inflated this like gigantic bubble. And we know the thing is going to burst. And in the final analysis, all of that inflation is going to show up exactly where the Fed doesn't want it to go. And that is in consumer prices. And the consumer price index is going to take off. And that is the real problem, because then what does the Fed do? How does the Fed control 10% inflation, right? If inflation gets up to 10%, right, how do they bring it back down to 5%, let alone 2%? How are they going to do that? Well, they can't. I mean, not unless they're willing to completely implode the entire economy. I mean, they could do it, but they won't do it because they'll fear that the cure is actually worse than the disease. So we won't get the cure. So then we'll die of the disease, which is hyperinflation. That is the worst problem, right? You got all these guys worrying about the Fed's inability to create inflation. 
when they can create all the inflation they want. What they really should be worried about is their inability to stop the inflation once it's running out of control, because that's where we're headed. But of course, you know, if you look at the FOMC minutes that came out today, nobody's worried about that. Nobody's worried about inflation getting out of hand, right? They're all continuing to pretend that their, their main concern is that we don't have enough inflation, right? That prices aren't rising fast enough. And so they need to keep uh, the monetary spigots open until we can get to this symmetrical 2% inflation. Although one of the things I think that the, uh, the minutes revealed is a discussion about what to do with their not quantitative easing program that we have now, right? The balance sheet continues to expand. We got the numbers again yesterday for the weekly expansion. I think it was only another $8 billion or so that the balance sheet went up. Uh, but again, it pretty much goes up every week. And the Fed is you know, trying to deal with this. And right now, they are pretending that this is just temporary, right? That this new facility that they have, what they're doing with the repo markets, and all this expansion of the balance sheet is somehow going to be tapered back at some point you know, mid-year. Right, that this is not a new permanent source of funding, that the Fed is not going to be permanently monetizing government debts, even though that's exactly what they're doing now, that somehow the Fed is going to stop doing this in the future, which, of course, it's not going to do because it's impossible for the Fed to stop. Because if it tried to stop, the markets would tank, right? Interest rates would spike, and then the Fed would be right back in the business of monetizing the debt. I mean, that's what brought the Fed back to the QE table in the first place, right? The market started to puke in the fourth quarter of 2018. The markets were tanking. Why? Because the Fed was not there. And then the Fed came to the rescue. The Fed came back. They turned the printing presses back on and the markets went up to new highs. What makes them think they can turn them off now and not have a repeat of what happened, especially considering the fact that this is an election year? Does anybody think the Federal Reserve, let's say in the summer, June, July, which is what they're saying, they're going to take the punch bowl away from the party right then when the election is in November? There's no way they're going to do that. So the monetary spigots are going to keep on running. They're going to, in fact, they're going to be wider than ever up until the election. And then, of course, if Trump loses the election, then imagine what they're going to have to do with those spigots. Right? Because first of all, the markets are going to tank right away if Trump loses. Because so far, they're not even pricing in the possibility that he might lose. Now, maybe things could change. I mean, maybe the markets will start to sell off well before the election. Maybe as people start to think about the possibility that we have a socialist president. I mean, look at Bernie Sanders. I mean, his numbers are shooting up. He is the number one fundraiser. Look at his quarterly numbers. He raked in a bunch of cash. Uh, more than any other Democratic candidate, he is rising in the polls. You know, a lot of people just want to dismiss Sanders. They want to just say, oh, there's no way that he could ever win, right? Well, that's exactly what people thought about Donald Trump. People were very dismissive about Donald Trump's chances of winning. And um, so I wasn't. If you remember, I thought he had a decent chance to win. I thought they were underestimating uh, the, uh, the probability that Trump would become president. Well, I think people are underestimating the probability that Bernie Sanders could become president. I mean, if he gets the nomination, he's got a real shot, a decent shot of beating Donald Trump. In fact, I think if the unemployment numbers 
are trending higher, and they could be. If you look at the weekly claims, it seems like they've bottomed, and we've been moving up. Look at that four-week moving average. We could certainly be in recession or close to it by the election. I think the official inflation rates will be higher. So if unemployment is moving up, inflation is moving up, and the economy is either stagnating or in recession, then anybody that the Democrats nominate would win. And obviously that includes Bernie Sanders. But even if the economy is pretty much the way it is right now, and even if the stock market is in the vicinity of record highs, I still think that Bernie Sanders has a much better chance of winning than, than people think. Because the reason that a lot of people <clears throat> voted for Donald Trump, right, again, was that Donald Trump called out the BS and, and leveled with voters by saying things are a lot worse than you're being told. The media, the government, everybody is lying to you and they're pretending the economy is really good, but you and I know that it's not. And I'm going to change things. I am going to go to Washington and I'm going to shake it up. I'm going to drain the swamp. I'm an outsider. And so that is what, you know, caused a lot of people uh, to vote for Trump. Now, again, he's not going to be able to say that in the 2020 election. But what Bernie Sanders is able to say is something similar in that, hey, you're being told we have the greatest economy in history. You're being told it's an economic boom, but you have more debt now than you did four years ago, right? You're deeper in the hole. Your wages haven't kept pace with inflation, right? Your life is getting worse and the rich are getting richer because they keep talking about this great economy, but you don't feel it on Main Street, that's because it's only great on Wall Street. It's only the 1%, the president's rich buddies who are enjoying the benefits of this trickle-down economy where nothing trickles down, right? Vote for me. Let's try socialism. I'm a game changer. I'm going to make America great by making America socialist, but not so much as that. I, we're going to have all the same free stuff that they have in Scandinavia or whatever he's going to say is an example of of socialism. And I think the public will buy it. I mean, I think Americans are just dumb enough to vote for it. You know, they weren't dumb enough in the 1970s. If you go back and look at some of the real liberal candidates that the Democrats nominated in the 1970s, like Hubert Humphrey, right? Probably one of the biggest liberals that they had. Then also George McGovern, who was Nixon's uh, second opponent. He, he ran against uh, Humphrey in 68, and then he ran against McGovern in 72. These were very, very liberal left-wing candidates. Now, of course, uh, Richard Nixon himself was pretty liberal, right? He was a liberal uh, Republican, right? I mean, the, the party moved dramatically to the right with Ronald Reagan. I mean, he was a Rockefeller Republican. He was pretty liberal. But the nation was not willing to go all the way to the left in the 70s. They were not quite dumb enough. America was not you know, ready, not stupid enough uh, to vote for socialism back in the 70s. Because they, you know, the, the, the memory of how great America was you know, in the 40s, in the 50s, you know, was, was still there. People remembered how rich and powerful America was. And uh, I guess the educational system wasn't quite as bad back then. You know, not as many years to get screwed up as it is today. Uh, but I think the electorate today, given a choice between a liberal uh, Republican like uh, Trump, who has far more in common with Richard Nixon, let's say, than a than Ronald Reagan. But I think given those dynamics and given where the electorate is now, 
We weren't ready for socialism in the 70s, but I think we're primed and ready for socialism in the 2020s. And I think to underestimate the appeal of socialism to the American voter, I think is a very dangerous thing. Yes, at one time there was a stigma, right? People, communism was bad, socialism was bad. That stigma doesn't exist anymore. Not with America's youth. They don't have the same regard for the ideals of capitalism and they don't understand or appreciate the evils of socialism, right? They, 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 they still believe in this nonsense. So I think to simply dismiss a candidate like Sanders based on saying, well, America will never vote for a socialist, that was true at one time, but that's not true today, right? So it is a dangerous time. So if the markets haven't already priced in this probability, uh, then, you know, they're going to get, you know, completely surprised. I mean, if you thought the markets were volatile on the election eve after Donald Trump surprised everybody by winning and we saw a big move up in the stock market when everybody thought there would be a big move down, uh, the collapse I think that we're going to have if the markets are surprised by a Trump loss, I think could be the biggest one day loss. Well, I don't know if it'll be bigger than the 1987 stock market crash, although it's possible. Uh, but I don't think it'll be that bad, but it'll be a pretty big decline. But then, of course, a lot of people are going to be hopeful that, well, this is really going to put the Fed in, right? Because we're going to have even more money printing. We're going to have even more quantitative easing in a socialist administration, because after all, the deficits are going to be trillions of dollars a year bigger with all the free stuff that the Democrats want to provide, free college, free health care, right? All that stuff is going to have to be paid for by quantitative easing. So maybe uh, the markets will start to think that this is going to be a good thing. It's not going to be a good thing. It's going to be a disaster. Plus, we're also going to have much higher taxes, too, on corporate America. So it's going to be a disastrous economy. The quantitative easing is going to be great for gold. It's going to be great for gold stocks. It's just going to be lousy for the overall stock market. And that's really uh, what is going on in the markets right now. That's really why the price of gold is already up $30 in the first two trading days. That's why gold stocks have been outperforming. Uh, the S&P over the past couple of years and why they're going to continue to outperform for the remainder of this decade and maybe longer than that. And that's because the very policies that the Federal Reserve is pursuing to prop up the stock market are actually far more bullish for gold and gold stocks than they are for the economy or the market. It's just that investors haven't figured that out yet. But by the time they do, believe me, uh, it's going to be... Um, much, much higher prices, right, for these gold stocks. When the average investor decides it's time to add some gold or some gold stocks to his portfolio because it finally dawns on him the nature of the risks that we're facing and the reasons why the market has been rising, right? The market has been rising for all of the wrong reasons. Everything that has been causing the market to go up is ultimately going to be the reason that the market comes crashing down. But by the time people figure that out, of course, it's much too late. That's why you got to figure it out early. The problem is when you figure it out early, you got to be patient enough to ride it out and see it through. Mm -hmm.